Well, this has kind of been a fun week in Lakeville with the Pan and Prague festivities. So what we did as a family is we took our kids out to see the car parade on Friday night. Any of you go to that? No? Okay. So it's a really cool parade with a bunch of cars uh, going by, zipping by. One thing I noticed right away is that there's specific rules that they have to follow as they parade their cars down, down the street. One thing they cannot do, they can't hand out candy or flyers or anything. If they do that, they're out of the parade right away. And another thing they can't do is they can't warm up the tires. You know what that means? Yeah, they can't lay down the gas. They can't burn rubber. They can't uh, spin the wheels at all. That's, that's kind of forbidden. And if they do that, does, any, does anyone know about that? I know that there, there might be a fine if they do that, or they might just get kicked out of the parade. I'm not sure. Um, but but it's, it's kind of a rule. You don't spin your tires. Now, th- there's this lady sitting about 10 feet away from us. There's a group of middle-aged women. She, she was having a great time. Just every time a Hemi came by, or a big car, you know, she would shout out, Come on, just a little bit. Peel the tires, warm them up. Come on, just a little bit. And she was crying for this over and over and over again. And every time she asked that question, every time she shouted at those drivers, you know what they did? They smiled. Because something was running through their minds. They were thinking, if I peel my tires, everyone's going to look at me. Everyone's going to remember my car. I'm going to be the stud. Yeah, I might get kicked out. Yeah, that might happen. And so they would smile. Every one of them would be thinking about this thing going through their minds. And a couple of them did chirp their tires a little bit. Nothing too impressive, though. But I was thinking to myself, if I were in that parade, if I were driving a 68 Dodge Charger with a 440 engine and a four-barrel, you know, carburetor and out we were going rolling down there and some lady was saying come on just a little bit i'm thinking i would put that pedal down <laughs> that rubber would be sticking to the metal when i was done with it and i would show i mean i'd, I'd do it safely of course but i would be like i'd be doing all this stuff and so i start daydreaming and, and then, then they'd pull me out of the parade and all these news reporters would come over what were you thinking why did you do that it was against the rules and then, now you have to pay this fine. Why, why are you doing this? And I, I'd reply with only two words. Worth it. <laughs> so that's what Pastor Matt was daydreaming about this week. So we're in part seven of our series called Unfaithful. It's called Losing to Win. And as you look at that title, Losing to Win, it might seem like an oxymoron at first, but it's actually a very common teaching that Jesus brought up, and it's also something that's established in the entire Bible. And I think the best way to introduce it and to really let it get some grip, some traction, is, is to bring up um, a, a popular movie that came out a while ago. Uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan. Now, I want you to raise your hand if you didn't see the movie, because I'm, I'm going to apologize to you right now. If you have not seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. Most of you have seen it. Okay, the kids, I kind of get it. You haven't seen the movie. Um, if you want to feel old adults, when did this movie come out? Good, 98. Got some movie buffs in here. 1998. So here's what I'm saying. If you haven't seen the movie by now, you've had 17 years to see it. <laughs> Just saying. So I'm going to spoil some things for you, but maybe it'll get you a little bit intrigued. So the movie Saving Private Ryan is really built around this tension, this tension that's almost unable to be resolved. And the tension is simply this. There's this guy named... Private Ryan, Private Ryan. Private Ryan had three brothers. All four of these brothers, Private Ryan and his three brothers, they were all in World War II. And tragically, as the story goes, tragically, all three of his brothers died in very short order. 
And so the, the higher-ups, as they were going through these casualty lists and sending home telegrams to, to the mothers, they realized, we're going to send three death certificates to the same mother on the same day. And so they resolved from that point on, we have to do something to get Private Ryan back home. She can't lose all four of her sons in the same war, especially not in the same uh, time frame. And so they do everything they can to save Private Ryan. The only problem was Private Ryan was lost. He was a paratrooper. They don't know where he went. There was no contact. And so they had to send a small company of soldiers to find Private Ryan and save him. Now this brings up all sorts of ethical and moral dilemmas because you start to wrestle with the question, okay, we're sending a group of, let's say, ten men to go and find one man to save him. Well, how much is that one man worth? How many of these ten men should die in order to save that one man? And this is really the, the tension that goes back and forth. In fact, I love this opening dialogue that, that he has. If you don't know Captain Miller, he's kind of the, the head character, the main character, played by Tom Hanks. I tried my Tom Hanks accent, it didn't work so well, so I'm just going to read it straight up here. So this is what he's telling his, his uh, about ten group of men. They're going to go on this mission to save Private Ryan, and they have this discussion. So Tom Hanks says, you see, when you end up killing one of your men, in other words, he's saying, when I tell one of my men to go over there and they die because of it, when you kill one of your own men, you tell yourself it happens so you can save the lives of two or three or ten others, maybe a hundred others. Do you know how many men I've lost under my command? And one of the other guys there, uh, Sergeant Horvat, he, he asked, okay, how many have you lost? And Tom Hanks goes on with this. I've, I've lost 94 under his command. But that means I've saved the lives of 10 times that many, doesn't it? Maybe even 20, right? 20 times as many? And that's how simple it is. That's how you rationalize making the choice between the mission and the man. You have to rationalize and say, yes, I might lose five men, I might lose 90 men, but the mission, the mission is so much more valuable than even those precious lives. And that's how he has to rationalize sending these, these, these men off to die. But here's, here's the sticking point in this movie. So he's saying, you've got to rationalize between the mission and the man. But then he says, this time the mission is the man. This time we've got a group of soldiers fighting and potentially dying to save one man. And the question they're all wondering is this. Is it worth it. And in some parts of the movie, they even say things like, oh, he better come up with a cure to cancer. He better invent something great. He better do something awesome. He better be worth it. He better earn it. And that's the, in a smaller scale, I mean, this is pretty extreme, but in a smaller scale, that's a question that all of us ask uh, whenever we have a major decision to wrestle with. Is it worth it? Um, if I do this, I'm going to sacrifice something. If I do this, I'm going to lose something. Maybe it's a no-brainer, maybe it isn't, but you have to ask that question, is it worth it? Our first fill-in for today, our first main point, how much are you willing to lose in order to win? How much are you willing to lose in order to win? And here's where, if you're a sports guy, I'm losing you for the next five minutes because you're thinking about all these great games where they had tragic injuries, but they barely won the game, but they were done for the season, basically, and now you're thinking, oh, yeah, big losses just to, to win. What we're going to talk about is, is, yeah, we're going to apply that in just, just a second, but there's different ways to ask this question, different things that it applies to. In fact, you might ask this question, okay, what am I willing to lose in order to win? You're going to say, that's not a fair question. 
because I have to know what I'm going to win before I tell you what I'm willing to lose. Here's what we learned from a judge named Jephthah as, as we go forward. What we learned from his story, it's amazing that we see the depth to which people had to wrestle with this question in his day. And it starts out on a spiritual level, a spiritual level. What are you willing to lose in order to win? Now we're going to jump in here and we're going to cover some, some really neat parts of Judges chapters 10, 11, and 12. And, and if you're just joining us, um, the book of Judges is kind of this time frame between Joshua and about 1400 B.C. when he conquered the Promised Land and Saul, the first king of Israel, in about 1080. So there's this three, 400-year gap, the time of the Judges, where there's no king. People just do what seems right. And there, there are certain judges that, that come up time to time to govern the people. Now, today we're talking about Jephthah, but before Jephthah even takes the scene, the people had to wrestle with this question. Here's how the story unfolds. First King, uh, sorry, Judges 10, verse 6. Same cycle keeps on going. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served, here's a list of seven things. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Now, the, I think the key word there is served. What does it mean to serve one of these gods? It's, it's not just, I'm going to go to the Baptist church for a while. Kind of your secret Sunday thing, or maybe a few people know. To serve a god means that you publicly take a stand and conform your life to follow it. And I'll just give you a hint here. Sometimes, if you know some of your Bible history, or if, if you've been, been paying attention to some of the things we've talked about in this series, some of these religions that they were following, you know, the entry level or the gateway practices, I like to call them, are the sexual things. Where to please your God, you have to do sexual things. And, and guys are like, I'm all about that one. Sign me up. And, and so there's this very common thing that that's kind of the gateway thing. But to serve these gods, and there's a long list of them, meant more than just that. Part of this included even sacrificing your own children. Will you conform your life to these gods? Will you serve them? Then sacrifice your child. What are you willing to lose for these idols? I'm willing to give up my own kid. That's how much I want to follow this God. And so the story goes on there. So they served these other gods. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, what does it mean to serve God? It means he doesn't want your sacrifice. It means he wants your love. When they no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them. This is ironic. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. It's ironic because, hey, you want to worship their gods? Then I'll give you. To their gods. If you like them so much, here, they can have you. So he sold them into their hands. It goes on. This is kind of where we get to a sticky point. The, the, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baal. So they kind of acknowledge we've done something wrong. We, we were willing to lose all the wrong things. And we forsook you, God. And so when you, when you look at this phrase, you might think, oh, good, now we're on the right track. We're getting back into the cycle of the judges where they repent and God delivers them. And, and so um, you might think this is, this is kind of a good thing. And you're right, it is. But there's something deeper that we don't see yet. It goes on. The Lord replied, and he goes through a list of seven nations again. He says, when everyone, 
these seven nations oppressed you, and you cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? Guys, we've been through this before. Whenever you ask me, I always help you. 13 kind of hurts, but you have forsaken me, and you have served other gods. It's not just that you've wandered into this nebulous vacuum of doing nothing, but you've been sucked into serving and conforming your life to someone or something else. And that's a quick takeaway for you, too. Wandering away from, from church or wandering away from God, wandering away from, from a relationship with Jesus is not this nebulous vacuum of a place. You are going to be serving someone or something. Who is it? And then it gets worse. Uh, verse 14, 13, 14. You've forsaken me. You've served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Ouch. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. And this is where the, the, the series name, Faithful, it comes to a screeching halt for a second. Because we're, we're used to this cycle where the people say, hey, we did wrong, come help us. And God comes in and he helps them. But now he's, he's putting on the brakes. Wait a minute. There's, there's something deeper here that we can't quite see. But, but what God is basically saying is, look here, you've chosen what you're willing to lose. You've chosen what the win is. And those things do not include me. Therefore, go try it. If these are the gods that you want, then try it. And, and here's the thing. When, when God says this, he's, he's not hating them. He's not unloving them. He's saying this because there is something that they haven't done yet that is so important to their relationship with him. There's something they need to lose. And he knows it. And so out of love, he gives it to them as it is. I will no longer save you. And here's why. Verse 15 helps us understand why. The Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Same thing. Then they say, do with us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. What they're saying is, we're putting up our hands. Whatever you decide to do, fine. We, we acknowledge that. We embrace that. But please, here's what we'd like to happen. And, and so they sort of put up their hands. And verse 16 is really the key one. Then, then they got rid of the foreign gods among them. You see, what they had done at first is they were holding on to these gods. God, we're, 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 we're messed up. We've been serving these other idols that we're holding on to right now, literally with our hands. We've been serving these other idols. We're sorry for that. Could you please help us? Could you please save us? Really sorry. And yet they weren't willing to, to lose them. It wasn't until God said, look, you're holding on to these idols. If you really want to hold on to them, then ask them to save you. Because I won't do it as long as you're holding them. Finally, they're in this middle zone. This is what I call the repentance zone. It's this zone where, where they realize these idols aren't going to do anything for me. I can't do anything for me. God shouldn't do anything for me. It's this middle zone of not knowing what to do. So they do the only thing they can do. They throw away, they lose what they know cannot help them. And they plead for mercy to the God who can do something for them. And that, that is an uncomfortable place to get to, but it's an important place to get to for every single person. And that's a, a daily exercise for every single Christian. 
this is, this is a section that hits a little bit too, clo- uh, too close to home for me. Would God ever look at me and say, I will not save you because of what you're holding on to right now? I think these people were so blinded to what they were holding on to that they couldn't even see it. And, and so here's some things that you can do and I need to do regularly to make sure that we're not holding on to things that are preventing God from saving or for preventing God from working in our lives. Uh, questions like this, uh, what does my schedule tell me? Uh, when I look at my calendar, what, what's most important? When I look at my checkbook, what's most important? And if you can't see anything, turn to a friend and say, hey, what do you think is most important in my life? That's a hard question to ask. And when you figure out what it is, then you go back to the first question. What are you willing to lose in order to win? And, and you and I can wrestle all day long about that question. What am I willing to lose? What do I need to lose? What's, what's, what's that one thing that I know I, I'll get rid of tomorrow, I'll get rid of next week, I'll do that later. That's for other people who are less busy. What's that one thing or those two things that you know you should get rid of and it's this wrestling thing, it's this constant thing. We can spend all day on that. And that's an important thing to wrestle with. But there's one thing that's more important. It's, it's to look at how God answered the question when he said, what am I willing to lose to win you? When God asked the question, what am I willing to lose to win you? God said, I'm willing to lose everything for you. I'm willing to give my only son whom I love for you. I'm willing to punish the innocent so I don't have to punish you. God was willing to sacrifice it all for you. And when I say that, when I tell myself that and when I tell you, you that, I think one thing that comes up right away is this sense of guilt, this sense of guilt. Why would God spend so much on me? Or what Private Ryan had to wrestle with, why would ten men come and risk their lives to help one man? Why am I worth it? I have not earned it. I have not deserved it. But here's the thing. Here's what we have to follow up with. This is fill number two. God sacrificed a lot to win you back. And here's what you have to remember. He never regrets that. We, we think he's up there saying, oh my goodness, I gave my son for that person and look what they're doing with it. I set them free and look what they're... We, we picture God as this regretting old man up in heaven who's, oh, I can't believe what, what these guys are doing. Absolutely not. There's not a single second that he regrets what he did for you. And this is a truth that really has to sink in for a little bit. In fact, we're going to touch on this at the end again just to really drive this point home. God does not regret what he paid for you. He would do it again. He will do it again. He would do it again in a moment because of his love. So what God did is he sacrificed a lot to win you back. And he never, ever regrets that. And as, as you look at the setting of this, we haven't even talked about Jephthah, right? The bad thing about Jephthah is as soon as we get to his story, we're hoping, okay, we're on a good track now where the people have put behind their gods, they're ready to serve God, they get it, they understand what they're willing to lose in order to win. But in Jephthah's story, it's like he, he wasn't there for this lesson. He didn't get this fill-in back, back um, however long ago. He just doesn't get it because here's what happens. It's, it's a long story. I can't tell the whole thing, but to summarize it, Jephthah 
is an outcast from his people, from his family. And he has turned into a crime lord. He's a renegade. And he goes, he's off doing his thing, and then the Israelites are like, oh, we need help. And so they say, hey, Jephthah, why don't you come back and help us? And so he goes through this big, long thing. He's, he's approaching the Ammonites. He tries to reason with them diplomatically. And maybe that's a good lesson. Read through that section. It's really cool to see how he tries to do that. And then when, it, when he realizes that he can't save Israel on diplomatic terms, he knows it's time for war. Okay, and this is where we learn what not to do. This is what Jephthah does in chapter 11. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. In other words, it's like God was helping him, God was directing him, God was telling him, this is what we need to do. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. He's going to war. It goes on. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. If you give me victory, I will give you whatever comes out of my house. And you might think to yourself, oh, that's cool. He's going to kind of dedicate something to God, you know, whatever it is that comes out of his house. But then he gets even more specific. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, I'm not sure this is really weird because when you look at any commentator, any smart person who tries to explain this, nobody can explain this. Nobody knows what Jephthah was thinking. Here's what I, here's what I was thinking. I'm thinking he and Mrs. Jephthah had a little um, scuttle before he left for war. Oh, you're leaving again? I have to take care of the kids and manage the house. And you're going to owe me when you get back. And so when Jephthah is gone, he's like, God, I promise I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Maybe it's Mrs. Jephthah. And, and some have tried to change the words or you know, change the meaning. Maybe he's not really sacrificing, but it's really clear. A burnt whole offering. Something would die. And people have tried to say, well, maybe it's an animal that would come out of his house. But realistically, who would expect an animal? What we're saying is we have no idea what Jephthah is doing. And the women are like, of course, he's a guy. You can't understand what he's, what he's thinking. It's impossible to understand it. It's impossible to understand it. And you, and you might be thinking, okay, well, how does the story end? What comes out of his house? What comes out of his house? And I know that you're burning inside to hear it, so here it is. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. His only daughter came out to meet him. And you might be, oh, well, well, we were just kidding. Can't, can't do that. I, and I didn't mean that vow, God. You know I didn't mean that. As, as it goes on, it's pretty clear. Jephthah says, Sorry, sweetie. You came out of the house at the wrong time. I made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. So I have to do what I said I would do. And, and you can read the rest of the story about, about how it unfolds. Again, we, we don't have time to cover all of it. But you got to ask the question, what was he thinking? Here, here's maybe an insight into his mind. He was thinking very much in line with the old idols and the old religions and the things that the people had been doing for so much time. He was thinking to himself, the gods that we're defeating, the, the gods of these peoples, they love sacrifice. They love human sacrifice even. So what if I offer God something like that? God, the first thing out of my house, I will give you and Jephthah was so stuck 
on this victory, on this mission, that he couldn't even see the great cost that it would come at. He was so fixated on winning that he couldn't see the loss. That's something that, that especially those of you who are type A personalities, uh, you guys have to work on this. I'm thankful I'm not like you. Um, but uh, here, here's, we'll go on here real quickly. Uh, number three, when you're consumed by the win, you will lose more than you can afford. When you're so fixated on the win, you will not uh, be able to even comprehend what you are about to lose. And this has uh, all sorts of applications uh, for family life, uh, for, for uh, establishing parameters with your work schedules, uh, for, it, for ventures that, that you have to deal with. It, yeah, you're winning something. Yeah, you're gaining something. But what is the cost? Is it your health? Is it your family? What is it? Again, I'm, I'm just planting some ideas here. I think this will speak for itself. When you are so focused on the win, you will not be able to even comprehend what you are about to lose. I wish it got better. Jephthah, you, you might think he's going to learn from this. But he doesn't. Though the way that usually each judge ends in the book of Judges, it says such and such was a judge of Israel for ten years, and then there were ten years of peace that Israel enjoyed. You know, it often talks about peace. And, and here, again, here's, here's kind of a, a spoiler for you. When, Jeff, and it, when it ends the, the story of Jephthah, it does not say, and there were such and such years of peace. Because here's how the story of Jephthah ends. Jephthah goes out, he destroys this army, he's victorious. You know, he's got to settle this matter at home with, with his unfortunate daughter. And then, as he's going out, uh, some of these other guys come forward. And they say, hey, why didn't you invite us in on the fight? We would have helped you. And then this is what happens at the end of Jephthah's story. Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. It's tribe against tribe, Israelite against Israelite. It's a civil war. The Gileadites struck them down because Ephraimites called them names. Ephraimites called them, you renegades. You outcasts from that other tribe on the other side of, of that place. You don't really belong with us. You're renegades. And so it's crazy how it ends. <laughs> um, so what they do is they set up this post at the river, and every time one of these guys would come over uh, from Ephraim, they would say, hey, say Shibboleth for us. Shibboleth, Shibboleth. And so the guy would come up, he'd say, Sibboleth, Sibboleth. They had a lisp, kind of. Their, their dialect didn't allow for them to say that S, or that sh sound, Shibboleth. And so they would say, oh, you're, a, you're, a, you're, a, um, you're an Ephraimite, and so bam, we, we, we kill you. And it says over 40,000 men died. Because they couldn't say a word right. What was the deal with this? Why would, why would Jephthah lead Israel into such a bitter civil war? Here's why. Because when, when he looked at things, and when these people, this other tribe, when they started hurling these insults at Jephthah, Jephthah was not willing to lose an ounce of pride. He was not willing to lose an ounce of pride. And so for him, the win was unattainable. Uh, fill in number four here, uh, finishing up. Sacrifice something to win someone. Not someone to win something. Jephthah was all too willing to sacrifice people for the sake of his own pride and for the sake of his own name. That was a thing. Sacrificed people for a thing. 
and, and I want to focus really on the positive because what we learned from this is that our relationship with people is a reflection of our relationship with God. And God was willing to sacrifice everything for you. His only son for you. And so as you demonstrate that relationship with other people, never ever sacrifice a person for a thing. Be ready to sacrifice anything for any person. And you're going to see some amazing things come out of your life uh, when that happens. Imagine a group of people. Imagine, imagine a church where we could do that. Sacrifice the things we have for the sake of living people whom God loves. Now, as, as we wrap this up, and I, I'm especially sensitive, uh, as, as I kind of prepared today, I was especially sensitive to those who might be military veterans, and maybe some of you are kind of wrestling with some of those things. You know, I knew a guy, my buddy, uh, some people died to save me, and why am I alive today? Why am I here? Why is my life worth any more than theirs? And, and on a lighter level, you know, all of us kind of wrestle with, with that idea. In fact, we mentioned it earlier. Why would God sacrifice so much for me? Surely he must regret it. Surely he must regret it. I want to finish off here with a quick clip from the end of Saving Private Ryan. And if you have kids, just know he's got some ketchup on his shirt. It's nothing too bad. And he's going to fall asleep. But it's, it's nothing uh, horrible at all. I feel fine with my kids in the room. But what we're going to see here is finally we recognize that several men put down their lives to save Private Ryan. And here's what we see at the end of the story. What, sir? And how would that be for, for parting words? Several men died for you. Now earn it. Spend your life earning this. In fact, as you look at the beginning and then the very end of the movie, again, spoiler alert, you, you see old Matt Damon, you see old Private Ryan, and, and you can see this grief, this guilt, this anxiety. Has he earned it? That was a question that he kept asking himself. And, and you and I wonder that same thing. Spiritual level, have I earned it? Jesus died for me, have I earned it? And that's not a good question to ask because here's the thing. When Jesus spoke his parting breath, when he gave his, his last breath, he did, not, he did not draw you in and whisper to you, earn it, earn it. He didn't say that. He said, it is finished. You have no part in it because I did it for you. The thing about you is the redeeming quality of your life right now is not what you do from this point on. That's not what makes your life precious. That's not what makes you valuable. The redeeming value of your life is what Jesus has made you to be. A child of God. The redeeming quality of, God, of, of your life is not what you do. It's what God did for you. And so as you contemplate that question day in and day out, what am I willing to lose? What am I willing to lose? I pray, I hope, that the sacrifice God made for you would help you identify who you are and what you 
are willing to lose. And someday, <laughs> thinking of this message or looking forward, people might say, You're, you've gone crazy. You, you gave up your career. You gave up your schedule. You gave up so much money. They're going to say, man, you've lost it. And you'll think to yourself, yeah, worth it. Worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your, the amazing sacrifice you gave for me, for every single person listening today. It's, it's a sacrifice we can't really put our arms around, and yet you gave your own son whose, whose value is worth more than billions of people because he is your holy son. He's the, your holy son. You gave him for me, for us. And instead of letting that truth lead us to guilt and trying to earn it and trying to work harder, let it simply be a reminder of what you made us to be. The redeeming quality is what you did, not what we do. So as, as we look forward in our lives, help us to see the things that might get in the way of that truth. Help us to lose the things that we need to lose, to ditch the idols that are creeping up and the things that we want to hold on to instead of you. Help us to lose them so that we can appreciate what you have done for us in Christ and so that we can better our relationship with one another. Bless us in Jesus' name as we also join in the prayer he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.